Well, last week we looked at the doctrine of epistemology, and that is essentially the doctrine of knowledge, how we can know things and can we know things and be certain of them. And I believe we can. We also looked at the doctrine of sin, the origin of it and how it progresses. And then we also looked at prayer. Now, I want to make a statement about prayer. And when I, before I do, though, keep in mind when I say this, I am aware that I'm pointing three fingers back at myself. So this, if anything, is really toward me. <laughs> and that is, imagine if we spent as much time in prayer communicating to God as we did commuting, communicating to others about God. How much of our time do we spend with God, and how much time do we spend talking to people about God? And I think we need to have a proper reflection on our time. And so I'm reminded that I need to remind myself of that constantly because I believe it really will impact the area of apologetics. And so today what we're going to be looking at is faith. We're going to be looking at three subjects, faith, evidences, and the problem of evil. And after each subject, I'll just probably briefly ask about three or four questions about each subject. Um, and I'll probably going rather quickly through this. Now, in the last two weeks, the seventh and eighth week, what we're going to be doing something entirely different. The seventh week, next week, we're going to be just addressing um, what I will call nominal Christianity. Those who would claim to be Christians, but I would say are in name only. We're going to be looking at how to address Mormons, Jehovah Witness. Uh, perhaps some Roman Catholics, maybe some Seventh-day Adventists, and so forth. And then the eighth week, we'll be looking at the same thing, but those who would not claim any form of Christianity, whether they're of Islam, maybe Buddhist, Shintoism, and so forth. And so today, let's start off with the subject of faith. What does an unbeliever need in order to be saved? And at the heart of true faith, is a recognition that we have absolutely no sufficiency in and of ourselves, but are dependent upon God for all things. Throughout the scriptures, faith is the trustful human response to God's self-revelation. God initiates the relationship between himself and human beings. And failure to trust him was in essence the first sin. We see this in Genesis 3, verses 1 through 7. And so when a person comes to believe, he commits himself decisively to Christ. And so the present tense of the, of the term faith has the idea of continuing. Faith is not just a passing phase. It is a continuing attitude. And the aorist tense points to a single act in time. And yet the perfect tense combines both ideas. It speaks of a present faith, which is continuous with a past act of belief. The person who believes enters a permanent state. And so I want us to look then at a biblical definition of faith. Does anyone have um, a New King James Bible? No? So what I'll do, I have an ESV, so I'm gonna, I know what the New King James Version says, so I'm just going to kind of quote it. From that, so he, if you would turn with me to Hebrews 
chapter 11, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 3. Hebrews 11, 1 through uh, 3. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Some versions will say conviction, uh, but I like the New King James where it says the evidence of things not seen. And so there is only one source of true faith. Faith comes from only one place, saving faith. Faith comes only from divine revelation given by God. And we read of this in Romans 10, 17, where saving faith comes from hearing the word of God centered in the person of Christ and his, and his saving gospel. So the certainty of faith. This faith is a supernatural capacity to believe in the gospel that results in salvation. And you'll find that in Romans 10, 9. It is a specific kind of faith, a faith that saves. And so this kind of saving faith speaks of certitude, not just mere probability. Christians may sometimes speak of believing as if it were merely a subjective effort, as if our act of faith or strength of faith were the issue. The Bible shifts our attention from subjective experience and centers it on the object of faith, God himself being the object of our faith. And so the medium of faith. Faith comes by means of the word of Christ. The thing heard is through or by means of the revelation of God. So Linsky comments this. What the gospel heralds make men to hear is not their own words, so that men might be justified if they were disbelieving. It is mediated by nothing less than Christ's own utterance. It is the words of Christ that we make known to men. And so faith results after an unbeliever has been exposed to special revelation from God's word that is Christ-centric. It is preached and taught, and this is what Peter meant in his apologetics passage. He said, we begin by setting apart Christ as Lord in our hearts, 1 Peter 3.15. We begin with the gospel. And so we station ourselves pivoted on scripture because we know the unbeliever needs supernatural faith. And so I want to talk now about the gift of faith. Faith is a divine gift given by God. This is what Paul meant when he said in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9. Paul said or Christ says for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that, not of yourself, is the gift of God. Faith is not the byproduct of clever, rational arguments. Faith does not result from indisputable archaeological evidences. Faith does not come from life-changing personal encounters and experiences. It does not arise from decrees made throughout church history. Saving faith is a supernatural gift. Everything about salvation is a gift from God. The grace itself, the faith, and the justification that accompanies it. You you cannot muster up saving faith of your own volition. Saving faith is alien to us and must be given as a gift 
by hearing the word of Christ. And Martin Luther summed it up when he states, It has pleased God not to give the Spirit without the word, but through the word that he might have us as workers together with him. And so, in regards to faith, I have just a couple questions here. How might you react if you're on the street or on the job or, you know, engaged with family? So how might you react to the statement, my faith is personal, but I don't want to talk about it? How might we, how might, I mean, I'm sure most of us have heard that before. How do you think we ought to respond to something like that? this if they tell you I don't want to talk about my faith I don't want to talk about it's personal and they even say I don't really want to talk about my you know even relationship with God so what if you just ask them would you mind if I talk to you about my relationship to God or about my faith and that way they don't really have to respond all they have to do is hear and then you have the opportunity again granted that they give you the permission to do so you can declare the gospel to them and then that way, you don't have to put, they don't have to feel on the offensive, you know. They don't have to feel, you know, get afraid that they're not going to have a sufficient answer. And so this being said, what is the most important tool we have in engaging an unbeliever about the object of faith? And with that, why do you think it's the most important tool? What is the most important tool we have in engaging an unbeliever, let's say, about the truth claims of Christianity? And my response is this, quite simply, the Bible, God's Word. Um, that, to me, I can't think of uh, a, a more important... Sure, we have plenty of tools, but the Bible, I think, is the most sufficient and important tool which we proclaim truth to them. And so this, uh, going on forward, how do, you, how do you think we ought to respond to the statement? Kind of on the flip side of that, I just have faith. If I just have faith, I'm going to make it. Right, I think we need to kind of probe that question a little bit further and say, well, what is the object of your faith? Is the, is the faith that you're trusting in, uh, in yourself? You know, is faith just kind of like, you know, uh, what I might see is like a Star Wars faith, a, a, a force that you're just trusting in? Or is the object God himself? And what is it you're trusting him for? Um, now, we're just about to get into um, the second topic, and that is evidence. But going back to the definition, I believe, of the definition of faith given to us in Hebrews 11.1, 1, does faith lack 
evidence. Sometimes you might hear the term sola fideism. Fideism simply means faith aloneism, essentially. And so people will say, I don't need any type of evidence to believe. And yet, though, Hebrews 11.1 1 makes it clear that faith is assurance of things hoped for. A lot of people, I think, stop right there. And they just see it as a, a hope for something. They hope that their favorite football or basketball team wins, right? But it doesn't stop there. It continues, Hebrews 11.1, 1, the evidence of things not seen. We can have evidence of things even though we don't see them. And so, last question on that is, can you think of a time when your faith was tested based on a promise and then that promise was confirmed to you? Sometimes, uh, you know, we, we know we're commanded to trust God, especially in all things, but sometimes uh, it can be more difficult when we're stressed financially. And so I think we are to trust God even in that. And I know in my own experiences, I've done that, and I couldn't see, you know, anything. And then I trusted God, and I was well supplied for. So the question is kind of think of your own experiences, where you trusted God, and you're like, hey, that just kind of bolstered my faith as well. And so now I want to look at the topic of evidences. No Christian apologist can function without the use of evidence. Not all have agreed, however, on what types of evidence are valid for Christians to use. Some would be prepared to use any type of evidence to bolster their argument. With the scientist, they would use scientific. With the philosopher, they use philosophical evidence. And with the New Age person, the sense of the spiritual seeking by all possible means to convince some. Others, emphasizing that it is the work of the Holy Spirit to do the convincing would limit themselves to evidence that is more clearly his specific work, the witness and the trustworthiness of the scriptures, the evidence of the presence of God in the Christian individuals, and the personal experience of the Spirit's work. But the question brings us back to, what is evidence? So traditional apologists have submitted that legitimate evidence includes natural theology. Theistic arguments for God's existence, they would say, Claims, laws of logic, scientific theories, history, archaeological discoveries, um, theories from neo-orthodox theologians, and human reason, apart, though, from divine revelation. Just about anything except scripture. However, the very definition of faith, again, going back to Hebrews 11.1, uses the term evidence. And so we should not conclude that faith is void of any evidence. And so this director directs our attention back to biblical evidence. Biblical apologetics also says the truthfulness of Christianity is based on evidence, but from a far different perspective. Biblical apologetics teaches that Christianity is to be embraced because of special revelation and not apart from it. We have evidence from both internal and external revelation. The personal ministry of the Holy Spirit, a changed life by the promises of Christ, his resurrection, answer prayer based from the scriptures, historical accounts from the scriptures. Romans 1, 18 through 21 is a biography of every unbeliever. 
they have enough evidence to know God exists, but in their willful sin, they push away the very evidence given to them. Regarding this internal witness of evidence given to all people by God, Paul says of unbelievers, God shows the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. We read of that in Romans 2.15. Paul says unbelievers know God exists because God has made it plain to them through external creation. His attributes are clearly seen by them, and they are without excuse. Paul tells the pagan unbelievers the same thing in Acts 14, when he said that God did not leave himself without witness or without evidence, tangible, objective, and empirical at that. And we see that in Acts 14, 17. Psalms 19, 1 says the heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. And so the evidence of the Holy Spirit's ministry is a third reason why unbelievers should believe in Christianity. is because of the evidence of the Holy Spirit's personal ministry. If you would, turn to John 16, verses 8 and 11. John 16, verses 8 through 11. And we're here going to see the evidence by the work of the Holy Spirit. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin. Because they do not believe in me. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. Even the world at large calls people crazy. What? If they cannot distinguish right from wrong. Right now, the Holy Spirit of God is convicting the heart of every unbeliever about the truth of God, the certainty of death and eternal judgment. And the Spirit works in conjunction with biblical truth and the gospel shared by believers to cut even deeper to the heart of an unbeliever regarding their obligation to forsake their sin and turn to Christ. True evidence is dismissed or misinterpreted all the time. And I told my wife I was going to provide an example, and here is an example. Think of this. You have empirical evidence of a spilled drink at home. Two people can see it. They see the exact same evidence. My wife sees the spilled drink, and she concludes that it was me. Okay? I see the exact same evidence, right? We see the same thing on the floor. Now, I conclude that it could not have been my wife because I'm seeing it. If it was my wife, she would have cleaned it up. So what do I conclude? I conclude that it was my cat, right? So we're seeing the same evidence, and we're shifting it to something else. The Christian sees the evidence of creation, and then he goes and sees that God created it. An atheist sees, they can't help but see the evidence that God has made known to them. And yet they suppress the very same evidence that is given to all people. And so a fourth is changed lives. 
unbelievers should believe in Christianity because of Jesus saving and radically changing their lives. Um, when in, you can read of that in Matthew 5, 14, and 16. When believers love one another in word and deed, that becomes evidence for the truthfulness of Christ to unbelievers who are watching. And while people don't get saved by seeing our lives change, they can't help but see the evidence. Christ promises to build his church, and we see that through the lives of changed people. The resurrection is sufficient evidence for pagans to believe. And you can find that in Acts 17, 30, and 31, and then again in uh, verses 34. And so as a result of preaching the resurrection, some believed. Scripture is its own apologetic. It needs to be used accordingly. And so a quick summary of evidences uh, before we get into this third subject of the problem of evil is True evidences are illustrations of Scripture's truth, not the basis of Scripture's truth. Good science does not validate Christianity, but rather complements it. Christians should see true evidences as edifying to their personal faith and not, not as justifying an unbeliever's faith. Laws of logic flow from God's existence. They don't establish his existence. Archaeological findings bolster my faith, they don't create my faith. Every person has an allegiance to an ultimate source of authority in determining what is true. And so for the biblical apologetic is the ultimate source of authority is God and the revelation of his word. And again, a couple quick questions before we go to our third topic is kind of alluding back to Chris's um, point is can we use our personal experiences as evidence did Paul did the apostle Paul use his and if he did what was he using it for Second question, why is being able to see the creative handiwork of God not enough to save someone, but yet label them guilty? Any thoughts on that? Is that a question? It is. Oh. <laughs> okay. Is Why is being able to see the creative handiwork of God not enough to save someone, but yet label them guilty. Well, because, you know, Scripture says that that's re part of God's revelation. Mm -hmm. So they realize that they're accountable to a creator. 
And so, you know, they, they sin against our conscience when they, they violate the principles of creation. They're suppressing what they've been given. Yeah. Yeah, but it takes God as a supernatural act to regenerate them. That's right. Okay. Um, just because of time, we'll kind of skip the, that question. So now I want to get into our third topic, and that is the problem of evil. No discussion on apologetics is complete without addressing the problem of evil. It is the critic's ultimate trump card against the Bible's credibility, at least so we are told. Victor Stinger says, The problem of evil remains the most powerful argument against God. And many have claimed there seems to be too much evil for God to exist. And T. Wright says, The Bible does not give full answers to questions like, What is evil? Why is there evil? Why is evil allowed to continue? And when will it end? And yet, evil is not a problem for God at all. He has everything under control. Our God is in the heavens, and he does whatever he pleases. And we learn this from Psalms 115.3. God is in control of all things, including evil. And he even has a plan for evil. The Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. And we learn that from Proverbs 16.4. And so Christians are realists about the problem of evil. The world has plenty of evil and suffering and manifests itself in many horrific ways. We see this in hatred, prejudice, rape, murder, theft, and other countless acts of violence are universal. So how can the Bible explain these horrors? Why does God seem to sit back and let it all happen, according to some people? And so the Bible addresses these matters. From the first murder, we see that in Genesis 4.8, to a flood, Genesis 7.21, to war, Genesis 14.2, to theft, kidnapping, gang rape in Genesis 19, children being mauled by bears in 2 Kings 2.24, and countless earthquakes and more. The Bible is no stranger to evil, pain, and suffering. The Bible stands as the authority on the matter. And we as Christians should not fall into the trap of allowing atheists to define evil and good. Atheists have no ultimate standard by which to define good and evil. To call something evil is to make a moral judgment. And to make a moral judgment, one must have a moral standard. To enforce your moral standard on someone else, the standard must be universal. And the atheist rejects a universally binding standard in morality. So rather than just acknowledge that evil exists, we need to have clear definitions in order to have a fruitful conversation about good and evil. And so I would say that God is the ultimate one who defines what evil is. Evil is what God says is evil. And we see this in 2 Chronicles 21.6. Evil is anything contrary to God's nature, nature, will, or word. Find that in Psalms 119.9. I'd say sin is the greatest of evil. The only way we can know what evil is, is how God defines it. The secular humanist would inform us that all killing is evil. And yet, I would say that not all killing is evil. 
So how do I know this? Well, one, God killed the whole world, save eight people in a worldwide flood. God sent ten plagues against wicked Egyptians, even to the firstborn at the homes of the Egyptians. You find that in Psalms 105, verse 36. And there is a time even for war. We find that in Ecclesiastes 3.8. And Jesus will make war with his enemies. And believers will celebrate and rejoice in God's victory over his enemies. And so we cannot resort to sheer human reason to define evil or good. God's definition of what is good and bad often differ from man's perspective. And Jesus warned that having a man-centered perspective rather than a God-centered one actually is satanic. And we find that in Matthew 16, verse 23. And so in talking, uh, we have, well, a lot of time left. Um, So we're going to ask a few questions about evil. How would you respond to someone telling you? They would say, because God is a God of love, he must then love those who are in committed marriages, consensual marriages, between two people who love each other, even if that marriage is a homosexual marriage. How would you respond to them? They are calling it love. And therefore, because they call it love, it should then be acceptable to everyone. How do you respond to that? Well, what do you mean by God loves everyone? And what do you mean by God must love somebody who is in a, quote, committed relationship? Mm-hmm. So define that term. Okay. Go ahead, Scott. So ask that to, since it might be a sensitive topic, and you look at the other aspects of the law and point the law to them, you know, to humble them, you know, to deal with their lives, you know, blasphemy. Mm-hmm. Since they are using the term love, right, I would probably ask them to give a definition of love. And if they can't define it from what the Bible defines it as, then their whole perspective about the definition of love falls on its face. And so that's how I'm going to answer it. So I can stick on that same topic in what they're giving me, because if I go to another topic, they may just think uh, I'm not being respectful of them to answer the question. Um, so I'm just, I want to stick on it, but I want to say, hey, I'm standing on what God has revealed and what he reveals about marriage and what he reveals about love itself. And so that's how I'm going to answer it. Um, now, that being said, how do most Christians define evil? There are plenty of non-Christians that would call things evil. If you ask them, hey, do you think this is evil? Do you think, and they'll, they will give in a a definite answer, oh yes, it is. In fact, they would say, well, it's evil of you to judge me. It's evil of you to preach on the street corner, you know, judging everybody. They would say that is evil. It's evil uh, being intolerant to other people or other thoughts. Um, so how do you think they define evil, though? Who's they? I would say non-Christians. How do you think non-Christians who affirm the term evil, how do you think they define it? Anything that goes against an egocentric view that allows them to live in the pleasure of their own will. But how do you think they would say, like if they say, yes, uh, murder is evil, how do you think they come up with a definition for that? social standards that have been developed over time. It's socially acceptable for you not to murder. Therefore, it's wrong. 
in another, then you have to go to the other side of things. Well, what if it's right in another country? Let's say it's an animism tribe mm -hmm. somewhere, and it's right for them to hack that firstborn up to pieces sure. and, and cannibalize it amongst the tribe. Right. So is that evil? And But it's socially acceptable. So you have to delineate to the point of infinite regress in order to, for them to have a standard to say that there's truly evil or truly not evil. I think most people have a, an idea of what is right and wrong is based off of an enlightenment period of uh, view of liberty in that you can basically do what you want as long as you're not harming somebody else. It would be kind of the typical response most would give. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, if I want to you know, if I want to have sex with somebody, as long as it's consensual, that's fine. That's not evil. But if I'm forcing sure. sex upon someone else, now I've violated that person's liberty, and now that's evil. And that would probably be a, a common view of and that evil it, it, today. Yeah, what you just said is one that I've been given. Essentially, they would say if you violate someone, else, someone else's will or, in fact, if you hurt them, Right. So my question then is, how does hurting someone equate to evil? Hurting in itself, uh, some people go to the gym and they're hurt, you know, but that in itself is not evil. <laughs> so how do we think we would? Um, so my question is, I kind of again get them. Well, we have this we have this view that we are sovereign. I guess mm -hmm. probably. What That's it boils down to, it's a man-centered, you know, if I'm sovereign, I'm in control of my own body, I can do what I want. Mm -hmm. And therefore, it would be wrong to violate your sovereign self mm -hmm. and that sort of thing. But that's what gives excuse to do all kinds of things that God does tolerate it. Hence my first definition, anything that violates my egocentric view of sure. doing what I want. You know, if somebody's going to hurt me, then it's evil. That's the first commandment in the Satanic Bible, too, is do what you want. Do what thou wilt, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, that just goes to show that the way of the world is the God of the world is blind in the minds of the unbelieving, you know. And kind of going back to what you said earlier, my thing is they base it on a standard, right? Mm -hmm. So my thing is, is what if that standard changes, even the standard of something hurting? Yeah. Right. You know, and so the thing is, I try and get them to get a concrete answer you know, and what happens is they admittedly will say that sometimes that standard changes. And so I, they should be able to see that they really can't give a concrete answer for the problem of evil. And yet I believe Christians can. Um, apart from Christianity, are all religions evil? Yes. I, I would agree. Um, why would you say they're evil? I mean, I have my reason, but why do you think, I mean, do you think, I mean, to the, mo to the average Joe, who's certainly not a Christian, they would say that that's evil of you to even suggest that. I would point out that they've actually proven my point. Mm -hmm. By labeling me evil, then they've already conceded that certain things deserve to be labeled evil. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it's just, it's just uh, now it's just determining what is actually evil and what is not kind of leads to a bigger point like you're saying you know like just the fact that unbelieving worldviews can't account for anything you know so when they come up to us and question the evil or say this is evil or that's evil you know um, 
They usually point to the Bible, right? With us, right. Matthew seven one. The Bible has slavery and right. genocide and all. Say, well, what's, what's wrong with slavery? Mm-hmm. You know, well, what do you mean? What's wrong with slavery? Right. Well, I'm asking you. I mean, I know how to answer that because I'm a Christian. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And so I asked them to define what's wrong with slavery. Well, don't you know it oppresses people? What's wrong with oppressing people? Mm-hmm. And so get get them to see, you know, the folly. Pretty much everything you've been teaching them. Right. Show them the the folly of their own worldview. Yeah. You know that they can't account for anything. Basically, it's just it's just my opinion over yours sure. at that point. And I think, you know, a lot of people say, well, the Bible's man-made, blah, blah, blah. And yet, if you press them on their position, they would have to admit that their own idea of evil and hurt is still man-made. say that all religions apart from Christianity are in fact evil. I'm doing so based on the claims that I believe the Bible makes a claim. Christ said he was the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through him. And so when I make that declaration to an unbelieving world, I'm referring back to what Christ said. So I don't have to default to my own opinion. And I would tell them, look, my opinion is no more or less valuable than yours. And I'll admit that to them. And so that's why I don't have to default to my opinion when I make that claim. I just say, hey, here's what Christ said. And his opinion, his statement, his fact is really what matters. And so that's where I'm going to cast my position on what he said. It's irrelevant what I think. It only matters what he says. And so that's why I can stand on the truth claims of what Christ said and Go about my business of apologetics. I think Romans one is that good one too for him giving them over to a debased mind. Yeah, yeah, to worshiping a creature rather than you could see the progressive steps of how God is. Okay, you want to go that way? This is how I'm going to harden you. You can have idols. You yeah. can worship the creature rather than the creator. Right. And not not that other religions don't fall into that, but that's a good one, especially for Buddhism and, and Hinduism mm-hmm. and Jainism. Sure. Um, what are some of the greatest evils of our day? And how do you think we should go about combating them? And should we go about it? Well, I mean, I would just say, you know, personally, because there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of ministries, especially like this abortion ministries, that, you know, they almost, they almost, you know, force you to say, well, unless you are actively engaged in anti-abortion movements, you are not doing God's will, you know, mm-hmm. going out evangelizing and stuff is just not enough, you know. Okay. I would personally reject that, and I would say no. I would say, you know, you have to preach the gospel. That's the only, that's the Christian's mandate, mm-hmm. is to preach.
preach the gospel, make disciples of all people, you know. And, and so I take my cue more or less from the apostles, see how they did it. You know what I mean? And I don't see them necessarily engaging in, in one particular social reform sure. over another. I just see them, you know, there's Paul in the marketplace preaching the gospel to whoever happens to be there. Yeah. At the same time, he goes into the Areopagus. At the same time, he preaches in the prisons. When he gets a chance, he preaches to politicians. He preaches to Jews. You know what I mean? So it's kind of like, you know, yeah, I mean, I appreciate when people specialize in something like abortion or human trafficking. I have mm-hmm. a sister. You know, there's a sister that visited us here a while back. She's uh, she's heavily involved in the human trafficking, you know, sure. you know world. And, and she yeah. delivers a lot of girls from that, you know. And uh, it's really just dark. And um, I praise God for what she's doing, you know what I mean? But I think that's just kind of part of the you know holistic view of what the church is doing at large, you know, and how it's fulfilling the Great Commission. But I'd say the greatest evil of our day is really rejecting Christ. Okay. And everything else is subsidiary to that. Sure. Whether it's abortion or prostitution or drugs or whatever. You know what I mean? It's all beneath that, you know. Um, and uh, the solution is the same for everything. It's the gospel. Mm-hmm. You know, that's it. Yeah, I would say I agree with you because when people make the claim of the greatest evil or evils uh, within even Christian friends, it's still subjective. You know, what you see as the greatest evil uh, could be just because of the area in which you're at. You know, you may not be, I may say, greatest evil is persecution and being burned. And that is because I could be over in Afghanistan. Here, we don't see that. <laughs> and so I may say, well, I don't really see that as the greatest evil because I don't even see it. I don't feel it. I don't. And so I would say it is somewhat subjective. Right. Now, back in with what you say, and I would say, look, if it's evil, we do need to combat it. And how we do that, again, is A, with the proclamation of the gospel. Secondly, uh, the Bible tells us to take every thought captive. And so when we're addressing something that's evil, what are we doing? We are intentionally trying to take that those thoughts that have penetrated and cause that action under subjection to Christ. And so we're taking those thoughts and we're saying, yes, I believe this is evil. And this is why this evil must be done away with and changed in order that you conform to Christ. Um, and so I don't really need to get up, hung up and, you know, trying to pit one greater evil against another and how much time I do this or this. I just look at them all and say, look, let's put everything, you know, let's take everything captive to the obedience of Christ. And kind of our last question is, if one can't know anything, and we learned kind of back last week about the doctrine of epistemology, knowing things, a lot of people will say you can't know anything. Um, which to me is a contradiction. But they will say, if you can't, if we can't know anything, then how then can they make the claim that anything is evil? So what does this look like? They claim that you judging them is evil, and yet that is still, in essence, a knowledge claim. And so how can they make that claim of something of anything being evil? You know. Is it evil to be against someone just because of the color of their skin, how much money they make, and so forth? And I would say, yes, it is evil. And they would agree that it's evil. But I base my standard on what Christ says about it. Okay, And so that's how I can know and call it evil. But I ask them, is if they say you can't know anything, then how can they make that assertion about anything? 
How can they say that making a judgment or calling all religions except Christianity, how can they even make that claim? To me, I think if you get them to show, if you show them the folly of what they're after, now one of two things can happen. Again, that can cause them to be even more hardened or God can take his, his truths made to us in the scriptures and regenerate them. And so I, going back, I would just say, don't be afraid to use the scriptures. They are our highest source of authority. Um, so we're kind of done here. Uh, in the next two weeks, as I mentioned, we're going to be looking at uh, several different groups and how do we give an answer of defending the Christian faith to them. We're going to be kind of just looking at a brief history again of um, Mormonism, Jehovah Witness, take a kind of quick view of Roman Catholicism. How is it different? How do we give an answer to them and so forth? Um, And so before that, before next week, if you have any questions ahead of time, if you want to write them down, uh, let me know in advance what they might be. Hopefully I can address them. Um, And that kind of concludes this. I'm going to close this out.